And thanks, Tim. You know, something that's helpful uh, when we do those corporate prayers, sometimes it's, it can be strange for us to have one person pray and we feel like we're an audience. But when we pray, we pray corporately. And so for me, something that's helpful to do is either silently in my heart saying, yes, Lord, to what's being prayed, or I audibly say, yes, Lord, or I, I agree with it. And in that, we together pray and lift up these requests unto the Lord. And so something to uh, um, keep in mind, if that feels strange or you feel like you're an audience rather than a participant, those are some things to keep you engaged. My name is Ben Wagner. I'm the missions pastor here at LCF. I drive to a hotel near the airport every other Thursday to pick up a van load of Afghan refugees in order to come back to the LCF gym and play some soccer. It provides some much-needed recreation time for the men, and it creates another point of contact for our church. A few weeks ago, before I arrived at the hotel, I prayed for my time with these men. Strange that I wasn't doing this before, but for some reason that week I felt led to pray. If I'm being honest, I mostly prayed for God to lead me in love instead of having a self-righteous motive. But I also prayed that God would move in their hearts. And lo and behold, the Lord placed the only man that had any form of conversational English in the front seat that day. I had forgotten about the prayer and was honestly just glad that I could communicate with somebody. They can be pretty lonely rides from the airport to LCF. Just a lot of thumbs up and smiles. We eventually arrived at LCF. Now, when I'm playing soccer with these guys, I have no idea what anyone is saying. And so I generally have two objectives. First, to defeat the team I'm playing against. And second, to pray for the Afghans to feel a tangible sense of the presence of God in our gym. I will not mention which one of those is often the highest priority. That day as I was praying, there was a growing frustration in my heart. God, are you really hearing me? Are you really moving in this situation? Do my prayers really matter? And lo and behold, again, while my team was off because we had lost... I stood beside the man who could speak some conversational English. We re-engaged where we had left off, but this time there was a drift towards the gospel. Through an open door that the Lord provided, I was able to share with him about our need for a Savior and God's provision of Jesus for us. Pray for Javid. This was the justice of God at work through prayer. It was such a gift from the Lord to me and a gift from the Lord to Javed. People of God, cry out for justice and cry out continually. Let's turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. I'll be reading out of the CSB. Now he, Jesus, told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, 
will he find faith on the earth? People of God, you need help. Let's understand the context of our passage. We're going to lay a necessary foundation for our section of scripture. So we're going to back up to chapter 17. Jesus gave a single warning in chapter 17, verse 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Meaning the only continual right response to Jesus is to place the totality of one's life upon the person and work of Jesus. Tim called this last week our singular devotion. Our job is submission to the king. Now this warning that Jesus gave us surfaces because of two realities that we see in that passage in chapter 17. First, the danger of suffering. There is the hint from Jesus of future persecution. He speaks of a violent rebellion against the rule of the king in 17 verse 25. Jesus said that he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In 1722, Jesus said that, this, that the disciples will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Connect those dots together and we can presume that the disciples will also be rejected by this generation. Their proclamation of the king will result in the same violent rejection of them and the king they proclaim. The book of Acts testifies to this storyline. Self-preservation is a strong instinct within humanity, and Jesus knows this. He warns about the impact of suffering on one's submission to him. I unfortunately label my tolerance of suffering as the flat tire phase, meaning that when spontaneous difficulty arises, such as a flat tire, I am quick to point to God and say, really? I I will think of all the ways that I'm trying to follow him, obey him, and that really he should do things differently in my life. That is, he should do things how I think they should be done. Now, put two nights in a row that my child doesn't sleep well, and I'm ready to go toe-to-toe with God. We have our definition of good. We have our definition of success. And if those things go off the rails, we can be quick to blame God, to judge God. Suffering reveals our singular devotion. And if by God's grace, that singular devotion is Jesus, it can wear that singular devotion down. The second reality is the danger of regular daily living. The days of Noah and Lot were filled with normal, comfortable living, eating, drinking, building, planting, marrying. The danger of this is that our daily grind of life can easily put us at the center of existence. What is more, a comfortable life can lead to the unconscious presumption that humanity has arrived. The blessings of the kingdom are here and we don't need to submit to the king for them. This reality is equally dangerous in my life. I don't have time for God because my to-do list is endless. We just bought a house a year ago, and I thought I had a to-do list before that. You get into a new house, and it's like, that needs to be done, that needs to be done, that needs to be done, that needs to be fixed. It's easy for that to take place. Or how about I don't need God's provision? I got two-day delivery from Amazon. I don't need God to comfort my soul. I got Lucky Charms and Netflix. I don't need God's glory. I finished my landscaping project. I fixed my cars, and I'm going to smoke a pork butt on the weekend. I don't need God for hope. I have a budget and a savings account for that. 
The realities of suffering, daily grind, and comfort are all things that we experience. And these all hold the potential of subverting our singular devotion to Christ. Now, I know what you're all waiting to whisper to your neighbor. He forgot he was in Luke 18. Let's look at verse 1. Now, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. Your translation might say, grow weary or lose heart. For those who have trusted in the King, the Son of Man for eternal life, who live in accordance with his rule now and for his rule to come, are living in a time that can wear down our hearts. On the one side, suffering, we can accuse God. On the other side, the daily grind and comfort, we forget God. Our passage shows us that for the people of God to live in submission to the king in this present evil age, we need help. We need a savior. We need him to give us a new heart and we need a savior to sustain our new heart. We need help. Let's read verse one again. Yes, we're still on verse one. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. Beloved, you need to pray. Now, philosophically speaking, God, by definition, does not have any needs, and he doesn't need anyone to do anything. However, Luke's Greek word translated in our passage as need is a word used throughout his gospel to communicate the unfolding of the unstoppable redemptive plan of God. So we see an example of that in Luke 17, 25. It says, but first it is necessary, that same Greek word, that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In Luke 24, 26, Jesus says, wasn't it necessary, the same Greek word, for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into glory? And Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must, that same word, be fulfilled. So to say that it is necessary, that it must happen in the book of Luke, is to say that something must take place in order for the preordained plan of God, which was set before the ages, to come to fulfillment and completion. And so prayer, prayer as a need, has been ordained by God for the establishment of the kingdom of God and for believers to be strengthened. Okay, that was a lot of like theological jargon. So let's take a quick trip through Luke and Acts to prove my point. We're going to put a, a graph on the screen. It's going to show a list of um, a list, list of verses from Luke and Acts. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts. And so when we interpret Scripture, we want to look at what the author's intent is. And often they will have themes or words that are uh, flowing through their writings, and we can pick up on these patterns in order for us to uh, discern their intent. So we're going we're gonna to work through these. Luke, I'm not going to read the verse, by the way. You're welcome to take a picture and look them up. Or you can just look up prayer in a, in a concordance for Luke and Acts, and you'll see all of these verses up there. I'm going to give you the synopsis of the verse as we go through. But we're going to go through all of them. Luke 1, verse 8 through 11. Jesus' arrival is preceded by the prayer of the multitudes and is associated with the offering of incense. 
Luke 2, verse 36 through 38, Jesus' identity as redeemer of Israel is revealed to Anna, a woman who spent night and day in the temple praying and fasting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke 3, verse 21 through 22, and Luke 4, 1, Jesus' identity and reception of the Holy Spirit was made public by God at his baptism. And Luke is the only gospel writer who records that this happened in his baptism while Jesus was praying. Then Jesus is sent out in 4.1 uh, to start his mission with his battle against Satan. Luke 6, verse 12 through 13. After a night of prayer and communion with the Father, Jesus chose his 12 apostles and then gave his sermon on the mount. Luke 10, verse 1 and 2. Before Jesus sent out the 70 on mission, he told them to pray and ask for more workers. Luke 22, verse 39 to 46, Jesus was strengthened to go to the cross in the garden of Gethsemane in the place of prayer. Also, he exhorted his disciples at that time to pray at their time of testing. Luke 23, verse 33 and 46, Jesus prays twice while he's hanging on the cross. First, as an intercessor, Father, forgive them. Second, in surrender, Father, I commit to you my spirit. Acts 1 verse 14 and 2 verse 1. The church's primary activity was corporate prayer before being mobilized and before receiving the Spirit. Are you seeing a pattern? Acts 3 verse 1. The first miracle in Acts occurred at the hour of corporate prayer. It's no accident that Luke would record that. We're seeing him track with this theology. Acts 4 verse 24 through 31. The first persecution was responded to by the church with corporate prayer and their subsequent strengthening and empowerment by the Spirit. Actually, says the place was shaken. How cool is that? Acts 6, 6, the deacons were chosen from the place of corporate prayer. Acts 10 to 11, prayer surrounds the Gentiles receiving salvation as God encounters both Cornelius and Peter while they were praying. Acts 12, 12, Peter's release by the angel is grounded in the work of the prayers of the saints. He comes back the woman opens the door and shuts it on him again, thinking like, that can't be him. And we're, we find out that they were praying at that time that he was released. Acts 13, verse 1 through 3, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned from the place of corporate prayer. Prayer is a God-ordained necessity in the life of a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. It connects us to the heart of God, the power of God, the will of God the deliverance of God, the forgiveness of God, the strength of God, and mobilizes us to work in the kingdom of God. It is necessary, not because our salvation is up to us, but because Jesus has already accomplished the necessary work, and now because of his death and resurrection, we are called by him to continue to fulfill God's preordained, preordained plan of redemption. You need to pray because prayer is both an expression and a cultivator of faith. So what kind of prayers are we talking about here? We're going to speed up through the passage now. Let's read verses 2 through 7. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. 
Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? Beloved, you are heard and enjoyed by God. We have a stark contrast between a persistent widow and a wicked judge. This widow, who in that day would have had no rights and no protections for herself, is seeking the judge to intervene in a situation in which she has an opponent. The result? The wicked judge could care less. Her response? I'll keep asking. The result? The judge gives her justice because she is annoyingly persistent. Now, for the interpretation of this parable, we have three things. We have the cry, the consistency, and the contrast. What's the cry? It's for justice, for the widow, and for God's people. For God's people, this means the invasion of the kingdom of God and the exaltation of the king on earth as it is in heaven. Tim has done a great job unpacking this for us of what it means in our individual lives and what it means also externally. This passage has a forward-looking cry as well. We cry to the Lord for his return. This is the ultimate moment of justice. Our cry for his return both expresses our faith in the Son of Man, but also grows our hope at his future arrival. So that's the cry is for justice. The consistency is continual. For the widow, she didn't stop until she got justice. For God's people, it is night and day. The call here is a life of prayer. Day and night is not referring to doing nothing but praying. Rather, it means that it is continual in our lives. That is, we build our lives around it. It is amazing that part of Luke's introduction to his gospel included the story of Anna, the prophetess, the 84-year-old widow who had no liturgical business being in the temple. She was of the tribe of Asher. And yet, it says that she was there night and day, praying and fasting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Anna slept. Anna ate when she wasn't fasting. But her life was built around prayer and the kingdom. We have the cry for justice, the consistency of continual, and we have the contrast. And it is this. God is not a wicked judge. If a wicked judge grants justice, how much more quickly will a perfectly loving, righteous, caring God? Looking again to the start of Luke's gospel, Luke connects the prayer of the multitude in Luke 1 with the burning of incense. We also see in the book of Revelation that prayer is connected to incense before God. This is significant. What that means is that our cries for help, it means that our engagement with the Lord, it means that when we approach God with needs, that God is not annoyed with us, he's not frustrated with us, but in actuality is a sweet-smelling incense to him. It is sweet. It is pleasing to him. Where the wicked judge was annoyed, God is excited. Where the wicked judge is frustrated, 
by the continual coming, God is beckoning us to come again. That incense unto the Lord, our prayers before him are pleasing to his heart. It is enjoyable for God. And the point of that is it would drive us to him. That is what the gospel does. It drives us into the Lord, to talk to the Lord, to commune with the Lord, to bear our hearts to the Lord, to entrust ourselves to the Lord. That's what this is. Some of my sweetest times uh, with my son are right at bedtime. And if I obey my wife's wisdom and don't wrestle around with him before bed, he typically quiets down, I'll lay with him, and it's probably one of the few times during the day where he is settled and we can kind of have a heart-to-heart. Now, typically, just because of random association, we end up on the topic of volcanoes or tornadoes. That's just kind of how it drifts. But sometimes, sometimes, really rarely, I'll ask him, what made you happy today, Bo? What's something that made you sad today? And he'll tell me. And it is such a sweet moment to hear my son tell me his heart and entrust me with himself. And in that place, what I love to do is affirm him. Hey, Bo, I love you. Bo, you're my son. That is a sweet moment. And I know as a four-year-old, it was actually as a three-year-old, that Bo understood that identity affirmation. Because I would tell him, Bo, Bo, I got, I got something to tell you right now. Bo, you're my son, and I love you. And when he was about three years old, I was putting him to bed. And he said, Daddy, Daddy, I have something to tell you. I said, what is it? He said, you're my son, <laughs> and I love you. And I, I mean, it's, in that moment, the emotions were like between laughter and overwhelming joy. Like, he got it. Like, to see my son receive my love, to see my son grab hold of his identity as a son, that he belongs to me, that I love him, that for me as a father is beautiful. And that is this place of prayer of which incense, our prayers are incense to God. They are sweet to him. And he doesn't cast us away. And in that place of prayer, he reaffirms, you're my son, you're my beloved, I love you. Our hearts engage with his heart. And this is why prayer strengthens us. Prayer is something that is typically difficult in my life because I'm a very task-oriented person. And so Joelle and I have tried to do some calendaring uh, in our marriage, and really it doesn't go well. Neither of us are like type A personalities. And so, <laughs> so, but if we do try to do it, my thought is we're going to plan our week around like things to do. Like we need to get X done, Y done, Z done. Like has to get done. When's the house going to get clean? Like I'm thinking details of life, right? Joelle is thinking, when are we going to spend time with the Lord? When are we going to pray? I'm like, come on. Unbelievable. That's what I need. And that's what this passage does. 
is it reorients our hearts to the Lord and to his kingdom so that when we talk about what is the center of our family, is it prayer? Is it communion with the Lord? When are we going to pray as a family? When are we going to pray as a married couple? When are we going to pray for our team in Western Asia? When are we going to pray as a church? When am I going to pray for my job? Listen, as a pastor, like my go-to is to knock out some emails. It's not to pray. It is, it is easy to jump into, into the to-do list, and yet God says, come to me. Ask me for help. Build our lives upon prayer. One more thing. <clears throat> I think in the American church, we're really good at, um, we're really good at Bible study. We're really good at um, event orientation, like doing some big events. We're, we're well-organized people. I think we can struggle with prayer. I think our small groups can struggle with prayer. We have an, maybe an opening prayer or a closing prayer. Ask yourself, how is prayer the center of what you're doing, both in your everyday life, but also in ministry contexts? This isn't a, a voice of condemnation or failure. This is an invitation of God wants your voice, God wants your attention, and God will move through that in powerful ways. Maybe once a month in your small group, just have it be about prayer. Maybe in your discipleship relationship, just have one time be about prayer. We actually just did that with Spencer. Our, our last time of, that worked out really well, Spencer. I, yeah, we just prayed together, and that was so powerful. One of the sweetest moments on Sunday mornings is the pre-service prayer at 7.30, and it is myself and Sharon Howerton that pray. That's it. And it is one of the sweetest times on Sunday mornings. I like it better than preaching. I like it better than singing. And no offense to y'all, I love it better than anything else. Because as the body, we are lifting you guys up. We are communing with the Lord. We are asking for his kingdom to come. It is just the sweetest time on my Sunday morning. Prayer is effectual, both in what it accomplishes in the kingdom and what it accomplishes in our heart. It is sweet. So we need prayer. It's ordained by God. We are called to pray at all times and to ask God for justice. So what is the result? Verse 8 says, I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? People of God, you are answered by God. God will act. Look up those references to prayer in Luke and Acts and see the hand of God among his people. God grants justice quickly. He empowers, he leads, and mobilizes his people to establish his kingdom. He releases his people from prison and saves those who are called upon the Lord. So now we arrive at a story like Stephen, the leader in the church who was stoned to death, did God grant justice there? He did. And I want to spend just a brief moment. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 60. Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 60. And it says this, When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. What is the justice here? Stephen was graced by God to glorify Jesus in the most powerful of ways. Dying in the same manner as his king. With the same heart of forgiveness as his king. Both of his statements are the same statements that Jesus made upon the cross. And not only that, but Stephen unknowingly, in that intercessory moment, Father, forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. He intercedes for a young man named Saul, who was overseeing this execution, who we know to be Paul the Apostle. Praying for justice does not always look like what we think it should. But God will make his name great in your life and in your family. He will make his name great through LCF. His justice is that his kingdom will invade the earth. Part of the answer for this is that his son is coming again. We cry out as an expression and as a faith-building experience for the return of our king. This is one of the weakest areas of my heart. The reality of Christ's return falls with general indifference when people talk about the return of Jesus. I mean, I know it's theologically true. I know I need to tick it off if I'm going to be a volunteer at LCF. I agree that Jesus is coming again, but it's not stirring my heart. And this was really apparent to me this last fall. And my only prayer to God is, God, give me that longing. There is a gap between my longing for the king and the reality of his coming. And I need a savior to fill that gap. Praying for the return of Christ, it reveals and expresses our faith, but it also builds it. I want to invite the worship team to come up. Our prayers to God are a necessity in our lives. They're a necessity for our own hearts. They're a necessity in the mobilization of the kingdom. And they are a sweet aroma to the Lord. Build your lives around it. Build your personal life. Build your family life. Build your job life around it. Build your ministry around it. That is what is central. That is what is going to strengthen and sustain your heart. We're going to take communion together.